Hello, welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. Today is April 3rd, 2019, and I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Peter Chur, Major General James Spider-Marks, and Brigadier General Tony Tata for our 2019 second quarter geopolitical outlook. Today, we're going to discuss the trade war in China, escalating tensions between Taiwan, United States, and China, the significance of elections in Indonesia, as well as Russian meddling in Ukraine's election, Brexit, and the continued unrest in Turkey and Venezuela. As you can tell, we have many topics to cover, so I'm going to throw it right over to Rachel. Peter, the past couple weeks you've been putting out some great content, combining the thoughts of our geopolitical intelligence group with your perspectives on the current trade war with China. Can you discuss how you're seeing the compromise or the uh, relationship between viewing China as a strategic competitor and the effort to negotiate a trade deal with China? Yeah, thanks, Rachel. I think we are in a tricky situation where we've named China as a strategic competitor, and we want to be careful about what we give them. We want to be very careful about technology. I think there's a lot of pressure coming from the Department of Defense and other areas to be very cautious in dealing with China. Yet at the same time, I think it's quite clear that the economy needs a boost, and a trade deal is really the only way for our economy to do better, for all the Chinese economy to do better, and really for the global economy, which has kind of hit a rough patch. So I think we are going to err to the side of getting a deal done, and we might be a little bit tactical in that rather than long-term strategic, but I think that's what's going to happen. So we're still pretty confident that we are going to see a trade deal with China now somewhere in the next two to four weeks. It's going to be more of an outline than actually a full-fledged plan, and that's critical. If we don't get that, look for markets to resume the selling pressure, and that is why I think Trump will kind of outweigh what Lighthizer and others might recommend and push forward with a trade deal. And I would also think that a trade deal is imminent, if for no other reason than political, which wouldn't surprise or shouldn't surprise any of us. Because on the heels of the Mueller report, the president has been essentially given a clean bill of health in terms of collusion angle, i.e. any nefarious dealings with Russia. Now, at the same time, he can get a good deal with China. So two top, quote, competitors, the president now is in a very favorable position. So it wouldn't surprise me if he really pushed forward and was willing to give some in order to get a deal with Xi. Yep, I think that makes perfect sense. General Tate, anything to add on China trade and some of the uh, increased competition we're seeing with them? Well, my comment would be that you know we have increasing tensions with Taiwan and regarding Taiwan's relationship with China and our support for Taiwan as a, as a pebble on the shoe to China and could impact any trade uh, negotiations that we have going on there. Sir, I think that's a really timely comment. We've seen um, some recent escalation of tensions. I mean, just very recently, the uh, fighter jets that flew into Taiwanese airspace. Also, some naval and Coast Guard assets have been navigating through the strait neighboring Taiwan. Do you see that having larger implications? Is this something our clients should be looking at as um, maybe an impending military action or conflict between China and Taiwan? What I see is we have, for a long time, supported Taiwan, and uh, that has been a cause of contention between us and uh, mainland China. And also the pumping of airspace and uh, sea lanes through the Straits, uh, South China Sea, has also been a a bone of contention. And, And so there are really three major factors going on, trade negotiations, 
Taiwan and the South China Sea and keep in those elements of power, the military and economic and diplomatic and informational pieces uh, going. I, I think this administration has been pretty good at so far and it remains to be seen whether or not we can actually close the trade deal, normalize or at least reduce tensions between China and Taiwan, maintain our, our access through the straits of the South China Sea there. You know, pilot on to what Tony just said in terms of trying to really reach an agreement with China. Uh, I, I would say that Beijing feels the same way, that they would prefer to be able to walk away here in the near term with a deal with the Trump administration. And, and there are some indicators that that might might be the case. But, you know, one of the biggest so so along those lines, one of the biggest challenges, obviously, is, as Tony indicated, our you know, the Taiwan Relations Act, which has normalized our um, unofficial diplomatic relations with Taiwan that allows us essentially to have a commercial relationship, but at the same time acknowledging Beijing is the legitimate capital of all Chinese. But what's, what's really kind of driving this right now is the notion that the United States and China may be close to some type of an opportunity and the Chinese are looking at this and using potentially the Hong Kong model of one country, two systems. But the jury has already come back in the room in terms of many of the challenges and overt failures of that relative to Hong Kong and China. So I don't think uh, Taipei is in any hurry to try to embrace that type of a solution. General Marks moving north uh, a little over a week ago, President Trump decided to lift sanctions on North Korea um, after the Treasury Department initiated them. Can you discuss that decision and where we're at post-summit with North Korea? I, I would say clearly this is an effort on the part of the, the president, and let there be no doubt, Peter's indicated it in terms of trade policy, that when you see the president more visible, that means there's probably less input or at least confidence in the president. Uh, using or at least embracing the input of those around him, both in the cabinet and then in special positions. And I would I would say that the president realizes that he's going to have to negotiate. He personally is going to have to have a lead dog position in negotiating with North Korea. And one surefire way to do that is to go back and tell Kim, look, I'll let you I'll let you um, enjoy some of the benefits of having um, fewer sanctions. There will still be sanctions of sorts that will take place. Uh, both globally and bilaterally between the United States and North Korea. But but clearly the president is motivated to try to move more aggressively towards some discernible progress on part of North Korea. The United States can do that. I'm confident that they can lift sanctions and at the same time have a clear picture in, in terms of monitoring any progress of the North in terms of uh, violations, um, in terms of developing additional nukes, nukes or uh, taking advantage of this respite to start uh, continuing to either fire or continue the development of missile technology. General Tate, anything else to add? Spider uh, makes uh, excellent points, and the balance uh, between the commerce angle that we want to see and the military, uh, the, the lifting of sanctions, the, the reduction of military exercises, these are huge steps that uh, the United States is taking toward normalizing relations on the entire Korean Peninsula. There's been 20 guard posts taken down in the demilitarized zone and 20 minefields also taken down. 
uh, around those guard posts uh, within the demilitarized zone. So th there is progress being made at a local level. Now, the big picture, of course, is denuclearization. But from a big picture level, there, there, there is progress being made. And uh, it remains to be seen whether or not we can get to the denuclearization. But uh, if we could open up North Korea to economic opportunities, uh, it would be an amazing thing and, and a great economic opportunity for uh, companies in the United States as well. You would hope that that would be the, the motivation for, you know, the global marketplace to realize when you look at what's taken place in South Korea over the course of 60 years, that it is a repeatable event in the North if we can, you know, kind of jumpstart this thing. Tony is absolutely spot on. That's the motivation. Sir, in the past we have discussed India's growing influence on the international stage. Most recently they demonstrated some anti Satellite military capabilities, in fact, India is only the fourth nation to harness this technology. How does this ultimately impact their global influence and military power? And given the United States refocusing and reprioritization on capabilities in space, do you see the United States supporting this development? From my perspective, uh, India's often from a military perspective has a difficult time getting out of its own way. I do not see them as having the aspirations project to power globally. I see this as more of a keeping up with the Joneses and having the bright, shiny object to be able to say that they can do that and also to protect themselves from Pakistan that they see as their uh, nemesis, that is their nemesis. And so I think it's twofold. One is to be seen as, as a power, and uh, the other is to protect themselves from, from Pakistan. You know, India's economic power is its tremendous strength. I mean, it's people power, obviously, as well. So I agree with Tony that the anti-satellite capability has more technological discovery attached to it than military application, but it really aligns very nicely with their, their current position. I mean, I all, of long, all along have thought, you know, India should receive more formal recognition internationally to include in the United Nations as maybe one of the, oh, provocatively, maybe it should join the Security Council. Um, we could have to, we could reconcile that with Pakistan, but there's no doubt in my mind that the cards are aligned right now um, for that to occur. Clearly, Prime Minister Modi and President Trump are aligned on a number of levels, and we could take advantage of that uh, of that alignment to everyone's advantage. Peter, anything else to add? Yeah, I think that's very reassuring. I think from a macro standpoint, aligning better with India would actually work pretty well, especially as India seems to be taking some pages out of the Chinese playbook of investing across different countries to basically secure natural resources. And at the same time, there's been a lot of questions from you know people in the U.S. What does this escalated tension mean between Pakistan and India? You know, a lot of people are obviously nervous about the fact that they both have nukes. So it's kind of you know, very reassuring to hear from you that this is not that out of the ordinary and that we should not be worried about escalation. You know, and I would tell you also the possession of nukes, um, not ironically, really measures behavior. So the fact that nukes are at play between Pakistan and India um, levels the playing field and also ensures a level of rationality to any potential flare up 
that would that routinely occurs between those two very powerful nations. General Marks, we are nearing the elections in Indonesia that you have asked our clients to look out for, considering it's sort of a battleground for influence between Saudi Arabia and China. Uh, how do you see the election shaking out? And depending on the outcome, what are some of the consequences for U.S. national interest, depending on who is ultimately elected? Well, you know, the Indonesian election is one of those things that's essentially over the horizon politically um, from for this administration, I would say, yet that position over the horizon, they they embrace at their own peril. As we all know, the power um, within Indonesia is quite significant, yet because of the kleptocracy, which has defined the government for decades, it becomes a place where the United States simply and other nations simply don't want to invest. I mean, it's a phenomenal potential upside market, but there is just too much corruption that exists within the government. The current government uh, is up for re-election. Um, it tends to be polling quite well currently. The challenger um, is General Subianto, educated in the United States, trained with, with many of our forces in the United States, is a friend of the United States, um, is a Muslim, yet comes from a mixed Muslim-Christian family, and is an incredibly reasonable man, yet it's a difficult road for him to kind of climb up and, and take over the position. However, I wouldn't be surprised if he did win, and then I would hope I would hope that the United States could be a little bit more aggressive with the government um, in Indonesia and try to have an impactful role. Right now, I would describe it as one of kind of passive observation. Uh, we need to be engaged at their invitation to try to help move this incredibly capable nation in a direction that's favorable and is, you know, kind of a convergence of our national interests and theirs. Yet Indonesia, as we know, is currently being defined by the competition between China and Saudi Arabia. I'd prefer to be on the side of having a third engagement, and that's with the United States in a lead dog position. General Tata and General Marks, um, as far as Brexit goes, we have discussed on this podcast looking at Brexit from more of a systemic issue and how uh, you know fractured Europe, why it's fracturing, what does it mean for the future of a unified Europe? Well, let's take a look at the issue of Brexit through the lens of how does it impact NATO. Uh, General Tata, do you see this having some sort of any sort of negative impact on the strength and military readiness of an organization like NATO? It possibly could have a negative impact on NATO. The result of Brexit means that uh, roughly 75, 80% of the funding for NATO is from non-European uh, Union countries. And the overlap between the European Union and NATO has been pretty significant. And while there are very different types of organizations, uh, they're, they're both at their core political organizations. And uh, you would think that uh, one's goals and objectives uh, would be somewhat aligned with the others. But what we see is this fracture between Britain, the United States, Canada, and, and a couple others. Uh, and then you've got Germany, France, and Italy aligned on the other side. And it's something to, to watch as it develops because as, as this administration has 
has been pushing for more member nations to pay their, quote, fair share, unquote, of their dues for NATO, the tensions now with Brexit and uh, non-EU countries shouldering the burden to protect Europe could play out uh, in an interesting fashion, particularly as Russia begins to push against the Baltic states and that kind of thing. You know, following on to that comment, it, you know, I try to view the the Brexit malaise and how that's going to turn out in terms of of how it's going to affect NATO, as Tony described, and the real rationalization for NATO remains as a counterbalance to Russian recidivist behavior uh, that takes place as a matter of routine. And um, all nation, all NATO nations are they have to pay their fair share because their fair share is their contracted obligated contribution. I mean, they signed up to do it and they need to do it. Um, so I think that discussion, I, I, I can't argue with that discussion for a second. I might be able to parse how it has been um, seen and viewed and, and this is played out in the public, which you'd prefer it not to. But NATO has to remain a bulwark and it has to remain efficient and effective against uh, Russian activity exactly as Tony described it. Um, not only in the Baltics, but um, I'm primarily focusing in on Ukraine as well. I mean, Crimea went away. The Donbass in Ukraine could go away. Western Ukraine could be absorbed back into Hungary and Poland and, and the rest of Europe. And you have this little sliver of Ukraine defined by Kiev um, and all of the economic challenges and security challenges associated with that. That would be a disaster, And it, but it remains a possibility. So it really is about NATO remaining strong and remaining focused. And then you have the wild card Turkey kind of hanging out there, like, where are they going to go? They're still part of NATO, but we're all kind of scratching our heads as to who they really align with. Sir, that's a perfect segue into Ukraine. Ukrainian intelligence services announced that Russia meddled in their most recent elections. Clearly, this is a continuing behavior on the part of Russia. Is this something in the United States we need to be looking out for as we approach the 2020 elections? You know, Rachel, that's a great question because the short answer is yes, we should expect Russia to meddle, and yes, we should be concerned about it. The, then the discussion is, well, what's the United States doing about it in Ukraine right now? And I don't see sufficient energy or either physical or intellectual energy moving in the direction to try to figure out um, what Ukraine after this election will look like. Clearly, it should remain an independent nation. It should not be a part of NATO. And the United States and Russia has an opportunity in Ukraine to have their national interests meet. Um, and that has everything to do with oil and gas supplies to the European Union. Um, and each individual country within the European Union may end up striking some of their own individual deals with with Russia and access to those uh, fossil fuels that are absolutely essential. Um, yeah, the election in Ukraine is absolutely critical moving forward. We're going to find out hopefully by the end of this month, unless there's a, a requirement for an additional runoff what Ukraine's going to look like going forward. What we do know right now is that Poroshenko, the president in Kiev, um, is not one of those candidates. And that's a good thing. General Tata, what would you like to add? I would just add that we have, over the last uh, couple of years, increased our military aid to the Ukraine uh, to assist them 
And I agree 100% with what Spider just said about finding that soft landing of uh, American interests, Russian interests, and Ukrainian interests all overlapping and finding a way forward. Uh, I, I think a part of the solution is strengthening the Ukrainian military uh, so that uh, it has uh, some capability to um, add teeth to its negotiations. And negotiations always seem to go a little bit better when there's a strong military to to back them up and, and get the result that you're looking for. Uh, General Tate, I'd like to start with you. We've talked a lot about Turkey on this podcast. General Marks just brought it up as the challenging relationship with a current NATO par- partner. Uh, we've seen their economy struggle in the last few weeks, and I think that's very much a reflection of U.S. pressure on Turkey. And just recently in the recent elections, we've seen Erdogan's party um, have a, uh, a, a less than positive showing. Is that a reflection on Erdogan's influence? Is that ultimately good given his uh, more authoritarian approach, leadership approach in the last few years? Yeah, you know, I think uh, Erdogan is just trying to hang on to power. And, um, you know, sometimes when you're busy fighting uh, uh, people inside your wire, you, you don't have a lot of time to really think uh, big picture vision for your country and that kind of thing. And, you know, he survived a coup attempt and, and he's uh, fighting ISIS on his border uh, he's got diplomatic pressure from the EU that he uh, wants to uh, be in. And so he's getting it from all sides, uh, the country is. And from my perspective, Turkey w- will forever be this uh, 51 to 49 percent. Are they going to turn in our favor or not? And, and the margin is razor thin. And I think really no matter who is in power there, and as a NATO uh, nation member, they Article 5 and of the North Atlantic Treaty and attack against one of the attack against all, and, and they've been struggling uh, with uh, ISIS on their border, and uh, but they've also vowed to, to crush the Kurds that have helped us to defeat ISIS in, in Syria. And so it's really three-dimensional chess Anytime you get in there with Turkey. And uh, if you recall, they would not allow us to bring the 4th Infantry Division through their terrain and to, for a northern approach into uh, Iraq uh, during uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so it has always been a troublesome relationship, and, and uh, all politics is indeed local there with Turkey. And they're trying to balance their relationship with sort of the extremist uh, Middle East to their south uh, east and their more normalized non-war fighting uh, friends to the northwest in Europe and and they are caught in between as they have historically been conflict and uh, economic opportunity. Peter, do you have a few comments on the economic challenges Turkey is facing? Um, I think what you guys are saying is really important because it does feel like we're coming down to crunch time in Turkey, and they're going to have to make a decision one way or the other. I think we did a very good job as an institution, Spider and others, talking about Turkey potentially pulling away from the West last year. And as we hit this point, we really haven't had a lot of geopolitical events that have spilled over to have big economic consequences. For a while, North Korea was impacting the markets daily. China's a separate issue. But this is really the first time, I think, where we're seeing geopolitical risk East versus West to some extent, and the economic consequences of which way Turkey goes could be very impactful, and it feels to me we're going to feel those consequences in the next six months or so. You know, I think what General Tata and, and Peter just described is 
the real the 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 pull and the description of a country that can provide stability, which Erdogan can, but you have to compare that to economic stability, which seems very tentative right now. Um, Erdogan clearly is the strongest political figure Turkey has seen in many decades, but he's got some significant problems as described internally and economically. Yeah, and I, I would just add, Spider and Peter, that you know, there, there are still a, a million plus refugees in Turkey, and Erdogan every now and then threatens the European Union that, hey, if you don't give me what I want, I'm just going to open the floodgates and continue the flood of, of refugees into uh, Western Europe that has caused an enormous uh, strain on infrastructure and uh, foreign exchange of these European countries that really hadn't anticipated have to absorb millions of, of refugees out of the Syrian civil war, the you know Arab Spring, and and other unrest in the northern tier of Africa and the Middle East. General Peta, you've discussed in the past the challenges Venezuela is facing. Obviously, they have incredible economic challenges, and very recently we've seen Russia and China intervene to support Maduro, as uh, most of the Western world, including the U.S., has supported a challenge to Maduro's authority. With Russia providing military forces, deploying military forces to Venezuela, uh, does that up the ante? What is what is the future given the current state in uh, Venezuela and U.S.'s response? Yeah, you know, this has got a little bit of a whiff of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis to me. Uh, certainly nothing as dramatic, but uh, what you've got in Venezuela, which is in our hemisphere, a four-hour plane ride from Fort Bragg, is um, Russia, Iran, uh, their, you know, direct flights, you know, every week from Tehran uh, into Venezuela. And you've got Hezbollah uh, there, and you've got Cuba there. And what uh, they are doing is uh, propping up Maduro, reinforcing him uh, so that he can be their puppet and allow them to do their illegal activities. There's significant uh, document forgery that goes on there and other types of uh, human trafficking and so forth uh, that happens as an extension of that. And to complicate the whole situation, you know, the administration has come out and strongly in support of uh, Juan Guaido as the interim uh, elected president. So the more that Maduro, um, backed by Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah in Cuba, tightens the screws on Guaido, the more we get uh, pulled into sort of a, we'll call it a pink line, maybe not a red line, but uh, we all remember Obama's red line in Syria when he said, you know, if you do this, then you're going to pay for it. And, and he did not do it uh, with the chemical weapons. Uh, we've got something similar developing in Venezuela where the president and vice president, the entire administration, has said we support Juan Guaido. And uh, Bolton and Pompeo have both made very strong statements that uh, Maduro's time is running out. And so we're on this uh, miniature collision course that if we can't handle it, if we can't you know, expel him diplomatically, uh, there's very few options left because economically he's not going to do it because he's going to be propped up by these surrogates that we've mentioned. So it's, it's problematic, uh, not only for how the United States and all of the nations that have condemned Maduro, rightfully condemned Maduro, 
but it's also very problematic for the people of Venezuela uh, that uh, are suffering and and that they are the sort of the forgotten cause here as uh, you know these people want freedom they want economic prosperity they want all the things that socialism cannot give them you know the challenge um, that we're seeing in Venezuela is one that it's probably not unusual if we were to try to draw out some scenarios of what it would be like in any civilized nation that suddenly lost access to all of its power grid. And within three days, uh, inhumanity really shows its face. Um, that's an, that, that is, frankly, an inevitable outcome in Venezuela. But as Tony indicated, Russia and its surrogates will, will prop it up. But as long as the senior military leadership in Venezuela chooses to stick by Maduro, you're not going to see a change. It just won't happen. That's right. Uh, Spider is exactly right. So goes the military. So goes the, the leadership in Venezuela. So if uh, those 200 generals or whatever you see in all those pictures of Maduro all uh, stick with him, it's very unlikely, barring um, conflict, uh, we see any kind of change in regime there. And it's slightly strange, I think, from a market's perspective, when we look at the Venezuelan debt, which had been trading, you know, it's very distressed in default. Um, it had traded up kind of on the hopes that Maduro would be gone. And lately, it doesn't seem to care. It's somewhat indifferent. So it's no longer acting kind of as a referendum on who's winning or losing. We're seeing a little bit the oil markets respond. I believe that the view is that if Venezuela comes to a solution that kicks Maduro out, that's actually good for energy prices and they will go so good for energy users, energy prices will go down because it provides a conduit for Venezuela to get back online. Away from that, though, it's kind of become interesting. Once again, the world's kind of watching this a little bit with bated breath, but it's not falling into markets the way it did even a couple weeks ago. No, that, that's very useful. You know, China has, uh, I want to say, about $50 billion invested in Venezuela, and now what they're seeing, you know, they're they're very, very concerned that they're not going to get any of that investment back. You know, of course, they're invested in the infrastructure and the oil industry and, and other industries there. And, and now with the chaos that's happening, China's looking for where to place its bets. They've reached out to Maduro, and they've also reached out to Guaido, and, they, and they're trying to be a little bit like the Afghans are in, in Afghanistan. You know, they 51 to 49% either way, you know, America or the Taliban, depending on who's going to be around longer. So they're, they're really looking to see who is going to um, prevail here and be uh, prepared to move in swiftly to secure their investment. And, you know, all roads lead toward some form of energy independence or at least an acknowledgement that you've got friends and neighbors who are going to help prop up your energy needs. And that's the big challenge that China is hedging against right now. It needs, it needs oil from Russia. It needs it from Iran. It's hoping it can get it from Venezuela and every place else that is willing to enter into that market. Yeah, I think this is going to be a real test, though, of China, too. We've been using the term economic colonization, whereby clearly China's making these investments, and there's always been a bit of a concern, how far will China go to, quote-unquote, protect those investments? How far will they go to ensure that the supply of natural resources they've effectively bought, um, how far will they go? And this might be a test case. Will they aggressively ensure that their investments work in ways that, you know, might be deemed unsavory by other countries. So this is going to be an interesting test case, how that plays out, and will set the tone, I think, for what to do with China, and circles back a little bit to the idea if China does behave very aggressively, maybe we are supposed to 
be more aggressive on our own in terms of reinvesting and planting our flag or working with India. So there's a lot going on, I think, that will really test whether China is acting, you know, by general world standards or they are really doing economic colonization through these investments. Thank you, everyone, for contributing to that conversation and helping us gain a better understanding of the geostrategic risk landscape. Again, this is Andrew Robinson with Academy Securities. And if you have an interest in engaging our geopolitical and macro strategy team directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. We greatly appreciate you giving us the time and your attention and look forward to speaking with you again soon.